0: following message is presented by fellowship bible church from its weekly pulpit ministry we offer an expositional study through entire books of the bible one verse paragraph or chapter at a time we pray that you'll be blessed by listening in thanks for visiting welcome to those of you joining us on the live stream this evening we're glad that you're here participating with us we have a small group tonight uh, wednesday is kind of our small group night i guess in some places you'd call it that we um have made a couple of technical changes to our live streaming system here at the building, so bear with us if there are any difficulties. We think it's going to work perfectly, but uh, famous last words, you know. Uh, So we'll see, but uh, it's providing us some benefits in-house here and and hopefully will be a uh, slightly better experience for those of you at home. We're studying in Matthew chapter 5 this evening with the Lord's Sermon on the Mount as it has been called, one of the most famous sermons, probably the most famous sermon of all, and uh, we're looking at it verse by verse here together. We looked at first, uh, last time, uh, the setting, well, two times ago, the setting of the sermon on the Sermon on the Mount and some background information about it, how we should uh, handle it uh, as Christians, where it fits in our system of theology, And I think I might have something more to say about that, not in this message, but in my next one, which I began working on uh, today for this coming weekend. Um, And we looked at the idea of the blessings in Matthew 5. What are the blessings? We said that's more than happiness, more than that transient, watered-down idea of happiness that we have in the English language. It's more like the idea of a transcendent, happiness or what I prefer to say maybe a a, a gracious favor um, or a privilege from God, uh, a state of wholeness that relates to the word shalom in Hebrew, a state of peace and prosperity spiritually. Uh, We see the Bible is full of these sorts of blessings, Psalm 1, blessed is the man, Numbers 26, the Lord bless you and keep you, and numerous other passages of Scripture we then began to look at eight character traits of godly people and uh, fit yourself into these, okay? So if you're, a, if you're a church member, a pastor, a pastoral intern, somebody out of town, somebody with your sister, somebody uh, at, uh, at home, somebody away, uh, these character traits fit in your life as a professing believer. Jesus speaks of eight virtues, Pronounces a blessing from God on the person of faith who exhibits those virtues. Now I said that the the blessing itself, you could think, okay, it's you know somebody who is, for example, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you might think the blessing is uh, upon those who who um, order their conduct aright and they're poor in spirit, and therefore the blessing is that they will have the kingdom of heaven, a future blessing. And I argued last time that I think the blessing is more than a future-only blessing. I think that the blessing entails present benefits as well. It is a blessing to know that you will receive the kingdom of heaven, and it will be a blessing to actually receive that kingdom of heaven, but you're also blessed now... In that, you have the attribute of being poor in spirit. And so the blessing is both present and future. Uh, I think mainly people would, would say, well, it's, it looks like it's mainly future, but, but I think you have to include the blessings of now. It's not saying blessed will be the poor in spirit. Blessed they are as understood here as a, a present tense state of affairs. So we saw that in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People who are not rich in spirit, people who are not haughty, people who do not have a high view of themselves, who are proud or arrogant, self-sufficient, atheistic, self-autonomous, people who are opposite of that, lowly, humble, meek. Well, there's another passage or section here that talks about being meek and gentle. Those people who have a a way of thinking about themselves in which they don't esteem themselves very highly compared to others. They look at themselves as a servant, not as a master. They look at themselves, as Jesus told his disciples, as people who are unprofitable servants doing that which is their duty to do. They live responsibly, but also recognize that any favor that they have is favor from the Lord God. It doesn't come from themselves or not, is not self-generated. Such humility comes with a reward. Uh, it's not pointless to be humble or poor in spirit. It's, it's not without a light at the end of the tunnel. For of such people as these is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19, you recall, talks about in verse number 14, let the little children come and do not forbid them, for of these, of this sort, is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm correlating this verse with John chapter 3 and using that connection to remind us, how does one get poor in spirit? Well, if the poor in spirit are going to have the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus said you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven, then I should be able to correlate being born again with being poor in spirit. And so the way that you become poor in spirit is that you are born again. Those two are are not only correlated, one is causative of the other. Being born again is is, uh, connected to being poor in spirit, or the work of God, we could say, and rebirth causes one to be poor in spirit and so those are born again people that Jesus is talking about here although he doesn't use born again he will in john chapter 3 to elucidate this idea and disabuse us of the of the idea that we earn the kingdom of heaven by you know sub- subjecting ourselves or submitting ourselves sufficiently to become poor in spirit and certainly we don't mistake this as being poverty Financially, okay, this is poverty in spirit. So taking a vow of poverty is not going to do it, okay? It just won't work. Uh, it's, It's completely of a different nature or sort of thing as this is. All right, secondly, the second characteristic of godly people is that they are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Favored are they by God, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn. Opposite of this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter five and verse number two. Remember there, in the church in Corinth, Paul said, "You have this man who is immoral, and you're rather than being um, sad about him being there or mourning, you are actually proud about it." They were proud that they had this man in their church. They had pride, like people say today, you know, pride the pride movement and all of that sort of thing. They're going to find out that that's not a very good title for their movement once they face the divine judgment. Pride is opposite of being poor in spirit. It's opposite of those who mourn. And so they were maintaining in the church there a fellowship with a man who is openly immoral. Instead, they should have mourned over the sin that had been done in their midst. So to mourn here does not mean those who are sad because they've lost a loved one. For that, there are other passages of the Bible. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. God is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our tribulations and all of our difficulties, and He provides help in those times of lowness and and difficulty. This passage is, is talking about mourning over sin, having godly sorrow over sin. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In verses 9 and 10, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 7 9, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry, there's the mourning idea, in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow, there's the mourning, produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but sorrow the sorrow, rather, of the world produces death. There's Judas. The sorrow of the world produced death, the regret at what he had done. The son of perdition went to where he belonged, but he did not have true godly sorrow over sin. He did not mourn. He was not vexed by sin in his life. Um, and that's really where I want to focus our attention, that we, we are mourning over sin first in our own lives, and then only secondarily in our society. Somebody, I think, prayed about that tonight, that we've been vexed to see what's happening in our society. It means here that when we mourn, we repent of our sin and we despise it. We despise when we say a cross word to our spouse. We despise ourselves, in a sense, if we say, those, uh, say things that are out of place or wrong or we do something or we're tempted by something or whatever. We think a bad thought, a bad word. We're grieved by that. We despise sin. It means being like one of those who ask this question, How long, O Lord, until righteousness is found in my life and until it is poured out like a flood, until justice flows like a mighty river, until the earth is full of the love of God? We mourn until we see those things happen in the world. That's mourning over sin. At the end, though, is not just a huge bottle of tears. There is joy because the Lord Jesus teaches us. that. And by the way, it's kind of paradoxical when you think about it. Somebody who mourns over sin is a blessed person. That's not how the world thinks about it. Somebody who mourns over sin is blessed because they know that they are a sinner, and that's a blessing. If you are like the Pharisees who said, Lord, are we blind? And the Lord said, well, yeah, you're blind. If you had listened and heard, you, know, you, you would have known the words that I speak, and you would have seen, but you're still blind. You cannot see. You're not able to see. And so it's a blessing to be able to see our sin, and to be able to mourn over it. But at the end of that mourning, we will be comforted. I believe the kingdom of Christ, as well as the more obvious heavenly state, will bring that kind of comfort to those who decry their own sin and the results of it. Can you just imagine perhaps for a half a second what it would be like in heaven to not have any bad thing in you or around you, Nothing. I mean, that's almost unimaginable. We can only imagine it in our wildest dreams. These are the things that we will experience and thus be comforted by because the Lord will bring that kind of comfort. We now who are troubled in our own sin and the sin in our societies, individually we will be will forgiven, will be forgiven and saved. Corporately, society will be put into an upright condition now in the kingdom when jesus comes to reign on this earth he will some in some ways force the society into the mold that he wants it to have he will rule with a what rod of iron that is like a shepherd's staff only it's a very hard staff and it will be used to beat into submission any opposition because the scripture says even his people will rule with him and he will let them rule as with the rod of iron and smash the enemy into pieces like a potter's vessel. They will be forced into that mold. But in heaven, after the kingdom, in heaven, think of it, everyone will be completely willing participants in the righteousness of God. There will be no need to force anyone to be righteous, to desire righteousness, to desire God. Everybody will do that naturally naturally because they wish to in their very being and nature. That that is those who mourn. They will be comforted. Number three, the characteristic of godly people. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek or the gentle. This is another self-deprecating character trait. You know what I mean by self-deprecating? Self-lowering, okay? Okay. I'd rather have that than uh, people's uh, effusive praise, Uh, self deprecation. It helps me. (laughs) Even if it doesn't feel as good as somebody patting you on the back all the time, you know, it's better to be self deprecating in a real way. These ones who are uh, meek or gentle are humble, they're considerate. Uh, and and they will uh, inherit the earth. Uh, The meek is contrasted against the wicked in Psalm 37. I know my wife is familiar with Psalm 37, and she's probably thinking of this connection there. Psalm 37, look at verse 10. It says, Yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Okay, now, let me go on to verse 12. Verse, Verse 10, rather, said the wicked. Verse 11, the meek. Verse 12, the wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. So you see the meek are sandwiched between the wicked in those two verses, 10 and 12. And that's what the Lord intends. He wants to show us that there's a contrast between the wicked and the meek. Um. Now, a very rich or powerful person could be meek, not too impressed with him or herself, not thinking highly of him or herself like some of these other situations here like being blessed because you're poor in spirit and so on. But um, by the way, some people take this verse and say, look, there's a verse that tells us that uh, all those farmers that have been put off their land you know, by oppressors today need to be given that land back because they will inherit the land. They will inherit the earth. They will have an abundance of peace, and so they use that in a kind of um, liberation theology kind of motif to say, "Look, you know, the rich are the wicked, and they need to be uh, the land needs to be taken away from them and given back to the the small guy." Well, meek though, that's not that's not what that passage teaches at all. That's really kind of parallel to the kingdom of of God. I'll mention that I think in a moment, but. Meek is not weak. Meek is not passive. It's not uncertain. It's not out of control. Meek does not mean you have zero goals. It does not mean um, that you're aimless. You can be meek and at the same time certain, confident, in control, in, in a self-controlled manner. You can have goals. You can have plans, etc. Meekness does not mean aimless or weakness or anything like that. And it's not that you permit everyone to walk all over you. Okay, to be meek is a quality of a righteous person. The future blessing for meek people is that they will inherit the earth. It's a blessing to be meek presently, but it's also going to be a blessing in the future. Um, some, by the way, have, uh, as I mentioned, have taken this. You know, blessed are the oppressed, and they use a little bit too much of uh, modern social gospel. Uh, kinds of things. I I think someday I'll make the case that uh, the modern woke movement is, uh, and and liberation theology is basically the social gospel just uh, revisited again. Just just another thing in different clothing. Same thing in different clothing, rather. Too much social justice going on with that view um, to fit just a conservative translation of Scripture. But it's meek or humble. The land in view there in Psalm 37 is the land where Israel lived, part of the entire earth made by God. And those who obeyed God would live long on that land. Remember those who honored father and mother? The first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and you may live long on the earth. Okay, Landedness, being on the land, being in the land of God was associated with blessing in the Mosaic Covenant same principle applies to all who are by faith gentle in their conduct. They will inherit the land in the kingdom of Christ, not the land of Israel because the promises aren't extended to Gentiles explicitly, but uh, the principle is there that those who are meek will inherit something in the kingdom of God. Um, we, we do not get any, any idea from this that the poor in spirit... Oh, huh, that's right. Think of this. So you've got the kingdom of heaven in verse 3, and you've got the inheriting the earth in verse 5. So some have posited the idea that there'll be somehow a division in eternity, that some people will inherit heaven, and some people will inherit the earth, and there'll be a two-level kind of thing going on. We don't take that from this passage at all. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is a short form for the kingdom of the God of heaven, which comes down with the Messiah and that will be the land where the peop- these people inherit the earth. And so really inheriting the earth and, and inheriting the kingdom and being in the kingdom is all one and the same basic idea. All right, the clock keeps moving here on us. Got to get that battery to run out temporarily here. Uh, but we go to verse number 6. Now this is the fourth characteristic of righteous people. The fourth characteristic of godly people, of, in other words, saved people. If you're a saved person, you will be one who is poor in spirit, who mourns over sin, who is meek or gentle, considerate, sympathetic to others. And fourthly, you will be one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You know Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2? As the deer... Hmm. You can hear it already, the song perhaps in your head. Or the verses, as the deer pants. You, you, my soul longs for God. Psalm 63 uh, as well. i uh, just turn there to Psalm 63 and verse number 1. These, this is a section of psalms I often use in the um, ministry to people in the hospital. Psalm 63 says, O oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. See, So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live and lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Well, there's so much more there that could be read. But thinking about that just kind of heightens my awareness of what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness and for God. It's a tremendous, tremendous truth. Picture yourself as very thirsty or very starved. Somebody recently I was talking to on the phone used the illustration. It was like somebody coming out of a desert. You know they've been in there for days, and they come out and just water, water. You know and they're seeing mirages and hallucinations, and they need help. They need uh, they need sustenance. The desire. I mean, really starved. You need nourishment to feel yourself again, and to to feel like yourself again, and to be strengthened. Who 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 would desire the attribute of righteousness with that kind of intensity? It's kind of like an Peter, when he says "As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. That is, we should long for a right standing with God, for moral rectitude in our lives, for holy behavior, for pious conduct. And uh, I take this righteousness here to not only be imputed righteousness. Uh, Paul, I think he would say, you know, it probably includes that idea. I mean, I seek that righteousness, he said. I, I I." Desire the righteousness of God which is by faith, not a righteousness which is my own, but that which is of Jesus Christ. But also, and we don't have to divorce these two, I don't think, in many passages of Scripture, uh, it's, it's practical righteousness as well that's at issue. What good does it do you to say, I desire imputed righteousness, but don't, I don't care a whit about practical righteousness? I don't want to live righteously. I don't care about that at all. That's not a believer's attitude. A believer's attitude is I want to live holy. I want to be just before God. I want to be right. I want to conduct myself in a way that pleases God, not because it earns me salvation. No, I'm long past that idea, knowing that I cannot earn salvation. The fact that it is sought out and desired indicates the person knows it comes from elsewhere, not from within himself, you know, Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're like food on the table. It doesn't come from inside of me. It comes from outside of me, and I have to put it inside of me in order to get the benefit of it. So it it comes from outside to the inside, and righteousness does the same. You must take righteousness to be righteous. When you're in this mindset, you will be far less enamored with sin and temptation. I thirsted in the barren land of sin and shame and nothing satisfying there I found. But to the blessed cross of Christ one day I came where springs of living water did abound. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? What's the blessing in the end? And in an ongoing way, I think they will be filled. They will be filled. If you ask what does Jesus say in verse 7 of chapter 7? Ask, seek, knock, you, you, will, you will find. You will, it will be open to you. It will be given to you. You could read this as a future provision, but I think it's also, as I say, a present provision. To have a mindset of desiring righteousness in, is in itself a favor from God. And in the ongoing provision of moral rectitude, There's a blessing also, just like you cannot eat once and be done with eating, right? You don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, get it and you're done. No, it's always, you're always hungering for it. You want to be filled with it and you're never, it's like the eyes are never full of seeing, you know, they always are seeing. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is always ongoing in our entire lives. Being pleasantly full after a meal is a blessing. Just like finding that your conduct is becoming more like Christ fills you with satisfaction because you have been filled with righteousness and with with, um, truth and with um, moral conduct, uprightness, and all the rest of it. Come, you who thirst, drink freely. Let anyone who wants to take freely of the water of life. It's available to all. Uh, John six thirty five. Those people who uh, were to come to Jesus would come, and they would find something very tremendous uh, from Him. And John six thirty five it says, "I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst." There won't be any kind of ongoing total emptiness that you would experience. Or in John chapter seven and verse number thirty seven. Notice this idea, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. As the Scripture has said, He who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The funny thing is, as you take more of that hunger and thirst for righteousness and as you experience more of that righteousness in your life, it will start to come out as a stream, as a stream of life to those that are about you. And so those are four of the uh, eight characteristics, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, and those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I must stop there. Uh, Already have run short of time, but hope that you will ponder on these in your life and in your ministry of walking with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I can't believe that we've already crossed over 25 or 30 minutes of time in the Word. And I thank you for that. Lord, this is an exciting passage of Scripture. It's a powerful one. It's one that's chock full of truth and connections to other passages of Scripture if we allow it to have those connections And I pray that these words are are improving our souls, that they are strengthening our resolve to live godly in Christ Jesus, that they are encouraging us and strengthening us and helping us. And Lord, that you would watch over us, that we would have these kind of character traits in our lives. Lord, we love you and we thank you for stooping down to men of low estate and lifting us up to the highest place in Christ in the heavenlies. In Jesus' name, amen.